I'm going to tell you about a man named G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was an English author. He was a philosopher. Uh, he was a preacher and a Christian apologist. Uh, he was also one of the great thinkers of the first half of the 20th century. Now, the story is told that the Times of London, which is a newspaper, the Times of London sent letters to some of the great thinkers of the day, asking them to respond with an essay that they would publish. And the question that they had was this, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton responded with a two-word essay. He simply wrote back and said, Dear Sirs, I am. <laughs> Signed, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world today. It is so easy to point fingers and say, it's those people over there. It's that group over there. It's these people who are doing this. They're the problem. And Chesterton knew what I think we all have to know, and that is the only person I have control over is me. And so when you ask what's wrong with the world today, the response has to be, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. We're spending the next few weeks listening to Micah, listening to the message he had for his people. Micah's world was falling apart. The language that he uses to describe his world, it's, it's catastrophic. Enemy nations were attacking. In a very short time, Assyria would be coming for Israel, the kingdom to the north. The high ups in the government in Micah's country of Judah, the high ups in the government were, and the religious leaders, they were filled with corruption. They were filled with evil. They were failing. But as Micah pronounces judgment, he doesn't point to them. He points to himself like Chesterton. He says, I'm the problem. It's us. We have failed God. We have failed ourselves. We're back in chapter 1 this week of Micah. Micah chapter 1, the first nine verses. It's page 776 in the blue Bibles in front of you. If you have the Bible app on your phone, you can find the Scripture references that I'll be using today there. I do want to remind you a little bit about Micah's setting. I, get, I covered it last week, but we need a bit of a refresher. Micah is not in the big city. He is not in Jerusalem. He's in a little farming town called Morasheth. It's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And remember, this is not the Jerusalem of the days of King David. This is not Jerusalem at the height of its power the height of its, uh, of the strength, the military strength. This is not Jerusalem in the time of Solomon uh, with, its, uh, with its wealth and with its splendor. This is 200 years. Jerusalem 200 years after the nation has split into two. Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah to the south. Judah has Jerusalem. The northern kingdom no longer has access to the temple. So how are they going to worship? Well, the leaders set up high places. They set golden calves. When did that sound like a good idea ever before? They set up golden calves on two mountains and told the people that this was where they were to worship. They had fallen away. They are no longer faithful to God. You can notice as you read your way through Micah, he never mentions a single king from the north. He never mentions a single king of Israel because none of them are worth mentioning. And Micah doesn't split hairs. He doesn't refer to Israel as Israel. He refers to them as their capital. 
he calls them Samaria. These are not Jews. These are Samaritans. They are not the Israel of God. Micah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. Let the Lord God be witness against you. This is courtroom talk. Micah is putting, is putting the people on trial. This is law and order. Dun, dun. Guy is calling God out of His temple to be a witness against His own people. And if we're going to hear what Micah might have to say to us, we have to put ourselves on trial also. And I wonder if we would be willing to confess along with Chesterton, I'm the problem. It's me. Before we do that, though, I think we'd have to ask, what is our crime? What crime have we been accused of? What have we done wrong? And what we really need to ask, answer is the question, do we take seriously the things that God takes seriously? And as Micah begins, what we see is that God takes idolatry seriously. And He finds His people guilty of idolatry. Now this is the key problem with Micah. This is the key issue that he addresses. The people have failed to keep themselves to God, to keep themselves to God alone. They are chasing after idols. That's what that's what's happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's why Israel is about to fall to the Assyrians. And why years later, Micah's own nation of Judah will fall to the Babylonians. God had promised them, if you go back to the covenant, if you go back to the law, you hear the Word of God. God says, if you keep yourself to Me and only Me, I will keep you in the land that I have promised to your forefathers. But if you abandon Me, if you run after idols, I will give you over to other nations. Now chances are, when you hear talk of idols and, and idolatry today, you probably think of ignorant people in the past who worshipped little idols, who worshipped statues, who worshipped little things. And it seems silly. You know, people would have idols in their home. They would have a little shrine set up in their home to, the, to their objects of worship. They would have these small objects of worship that they, that they devoted themselves to. They had these little objects of worship that they gave their time and attention to, and they would, excuse me, they would go to those small objects of worship, and they would inquire of them what they should do, and they would look for their, <laughs> they would look, they would look for their answers from those little objects of worship. I mean, can you imagine just how silly that is? Can you imagine just how horrible that would be? Wouldn't that be awful? Oh, we've got idols. Tim Keller has a wonderful little book called Counterfeit Gods where he calls us to account for the idols that we've got in our own lives. He chooses to define idolatry today. This is, this is Keller's definition of idolatry and I think it's worth hearing. He calls idolatry, he says, idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. You hear that? 
Idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. Now, hear that. It's incomplete. There are things of this world that give us joy. There are ideas. There are values that we have that give us joy. There are even people in our life that give us joy. But all of them have the potential of pulling us away from our devotion to God. Keller goes on and he writes, Fascism makes an idol of one's, of one's race and nationality. Fascism makes an idol of one's race and nationality. Socialism makes an idol of the state. We hear that and we go, yeah, that's what's wrong with those people. And then he goes on and he says, capitalism makes an idol of the free market. Well, now he's starting to meddle. Humanism makes an idol of reason and science. Individualism makes an idol out of individual freedom. And traditionalism makes the family and tradition an idol. You see, the problem is there are idols listed there that you love and they make you feel safe. They make you feel like you've got it all figured out. They make you feel comfortable. Some of those idols resonate with us. But there comes a point when the idol becomes more important than God and we become faithful to the idol and not faithful to Him. And when that happens, who suffers? Well, we suffer but also the people around us who need to see what devotion to God looks like. They suffer. The people around us who need to see the heart of God in us, they suffer. The people who need His compassion, who need His kindness, who need His faithfulness from us and their, His love from us, they suffer. And so this is the crime that Micah addresses. This is the crime for which Micah puts his people on trial. This is the crime we're still guilty of. This is the crime that God still takes seriously. Verses 3 and 4, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The high places, that's where they went to worship. And the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, and water poured down from steep places all of this for the transgression of Israel. It sounds serious. Mountains melting like wax? God is hot about this. Verse 5, all of this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Well, is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem. Now, when again, when the kingdom divided, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, Israel no longer had access to the temple because that's in Jerusalem, that's in Judah. And so the king made two golden calves, put them on top of two mountains, one of them in Dan and one of them in Bethel. And he said the words, These are your gods now. This is what you are to worship. Now, gave the people golden calves. But I want you to hear what Micah says again. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria where they worship those golden calves? But what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem, you, you've got the temple in Jerusalem. You've got the temple that Solomon built. You've got the temple where Levites minister before God just as God instructed back in the law. You've got, you've got the temple in Jerusalem where people worship, where people make their sacrifices. But if your heart is far from God, if you've become attached to idols in your world, then the temple is just a high place. 
It's just idolatry that's happening there. This mountain or that, if your heart is not right with God, if your heart is not set on Him, it is idolatry. And what Micah calls us to is not just the acknowledgement that we've failed. He calls us to return to God, to repent of our idolatry. And as he confronts us, Micah shows us that the proper response to our failure is for us to lament. That's the proper response to failure is for us to lament. <laughs> I would willing, be willing to take bets that I am probably the only preacher in the county who is preaching a sermon on lament today. I may be the only preacher in the state who is preaching on lament today. It's not a popular message. Lament! Be sad, weep and wail, put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn before God. That is not a, a popular message. Feel the impact of your sin. Feel the impact of your failure. We don't want to do that. We don't want preachers that tell us to do that. We want preachers that pump us up. We want preachers that make us feel good. Micah, in, in chapter 3, he says they had preachers that did that back then too. As long as you fed them, they'd, they'd tell you good stuff. As long as you kept them full, uh, they, they would preach good things to you. I'd remind you that none of those guys have a book in the Bible today. Their message wasn't worth hearing. We might want to hear this. We might want to give careful thought to how we have broken God's heart by straying from Him. And we might want to give careful thought to how do we respond. People have broken God's heart and His wrath is coming for them. Verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will, pull, I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of the prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of the prostitute they shall return. Nothing's going to change this, Micah says. The wrath of God is coming. We understand, if we understand God to be righteous, then our response is not going to be to argue with Him. Oh God, it's just a little idol. Just a little idolatry. How can you get all worked up about this? No, no, no. We, we can't downplay our failure. Our response is to confess. Our response is to lament. Our response is to put ourselves before Him and say, you are right. We have failed. We agree with you. Verses 8 and 9, Micah writes, for this I will lament. For this I will wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gates of my people to Jerusalem. You hear the diagnosis against Samaria. Samaria is the her here, by the way. Her wound is incurable. You don't want a doctor to say that, do you? You don't want to hear that from a doctor. You don't want to hear that from God. Her wound is incurable. We can't fix this, he says. And even worse, it's spreading. The infection has spread to Jerusalem, to the temple. This is what happens when God stops being our complete joy. This is what happens when we desire and find our joy in other things than God. We cannot pretend we are clean. We cannot pretend we are innocent. We can't point to the world and say, well, at least we're not as bad as those people. Well, at least we haven't done what those people have done. The response when confronted with our failure is to lament and say, God is right. 
It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. He enters Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And as he comes into Jerusalem, verse 37, what does he do? He weeps over the failure of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. He weeps just as Micah wept. Jesus' brother James calls every one of us to lament in James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then He will exalt you. There it is. Lamenting, mourning, humbling ourselves and turning back to God. And I hear a lot of talk these days about everything that's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world today? What is wrong with our country today? And there are people today who will tell you, and when they tell you what's wrong with the world, they want to get you angry. They want you to be angry. Because if you start being angry, if you start being scared and angry, you will stop thinking. And then they can tell you what to think. You fall into this fly into this blind rage. Your brain shuts down and all you do is respond. Fight or flight. No one is saying maybe we ought to be sad about this. I don't hear anybody saying maybe, we, maybe the response is for us to mourn what we've lost and what we've become, what we've let ourselves lose. Maybe the answer is to acknowledge our failure. Maybe the answer is like Chesterton to say, I am. I'm the problem. And before I blame anyone else, I need to turn my heart back to God. I need to come running for him, the point of lament isn't to be sad. The point of lament isn't to stay sad. The point of lament is to be changed, to be transformed. Ultimately, what Micah shows us is that healing begins when our hearts break with God's heart. Healing begins when our hearts break with God's heart. He begins by listing, Micah begins by listing the failures of the people. Israel isn't even Israel anymore. They've failed. They've fallen. They're Samaria now. They're worshiping a golden idol on a mountain. Judah has the temple in Jerusalem, but their hearts are far from God. And we confess that there are idols in this world that have captivated our hearts. And we have not always been faithful to the heart of God as He has called us. And so Micah laments, he mourns, he cries out for the failure of his people and he invites us to lament. Verse 8, For this I will lament and I will wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. If you ever watched a nature show and listened to those animals cry out, you know what he's talking about. It's loud, it's noisy, it sounds like lamenting. Verse 16, he goes on and he, and he invites others to join him. Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go, your children shall go from you into exile. Now, it sounds a little funny because he says, Make yourself bald, and some of us don't have to try too hard, do we? You know, it just, it just happens. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. But you hear what he says. First of all, shaving your head back then in that culture was a sign of mourning. He says it's not about your failure. It's not just about what you've done to yourself. Make yourself bald. Lament for your children because of what you've done to your kids. 
Your children are going to be taken into exile. Your children are not going to stay in this land. Your children are going to become slaves in Babylon. Repent, mourn, weep what's coming. Micah is calling his people back to the heart of God. And the heart of God does not look like rituals. Whether those rituals are performed in front of a golden calf on the mountain there in Bethel or whether they're performed by priests there in Bethlehem, or sorry, not Bethlehem, but in, in, in Jerusalem, when those who are performing the sacrifices, when they are exploiting the hurting, when those priests who are performing the sacrifices at the temple are also exploiting the hurting, are taking their money, are, are taking the support that should be given to those who are in need, then that's idolatry. And instead, what does the heart of God look like? And we find we have to go back again to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The heart of God does not look like rituals. It looks like caring for others. To do justice. To love kindness and walk humbly with God. It looks like caring for others. Caring for those who are hurting. Caring for those who have been beaten down. Caring for those who need to know that God cares for them. We don't dare approach God. We don't dare come before Him in worship and at the same time withhold ourselves from those who are hurting. Withhold ourselves from those who are in need. We don't dare think that we're acceptable to Him just because we showed up on the right mountain or we showed up at the right church if we're not accepting others, if we're not caring for them, if we're not helping those who are hurting. When we build our lives so that we get ahead at the expense of others, that's, that's idolatry. When rituals and becoming and being right becomes more important than helping others, that is idolatry. And that breaks the heart of God and it should break our hearts also. Again, back to verse 5. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? You Samaritans are wrong. You don't know how to worship because you're doing it on the wrong mountain. You Jews are down there in, in Jerusalem. You think you've got the right mountain. You think you've got the right temple. This went on for a long time. About 800 years after Micah writes this, Jesus comes along. A little less than 800 years. And He sits down, next, he sits down by a well in Samaria, and a Samaritan woman comes out to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she says to Jesus, you Jews, you say we're supposed to worship on, on the, at the temple in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we worship over here at Bethel at this mountain. Which one is right? And Jesus says, neither is right, because they are both broken. And then he says to her, the hour is coming, John chapter 4, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. And then she says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, it's me. I'm the one you're waiting for. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. That is to know His heart. To know His heart better than anything. And when God's heart becomes the center of your faith, you will know it. When you put down the idols and God's heart finally becomes the center of your faith, you will know it. But more importantly, your neighbors will know it. The people around us will know it. The hurting will know it. Because they will see the justice. They will know the kindness. And they will know that we walk humbly with our God. We will feel what David promised there in Psalm 30, which I read at the beginning today. In verse 11, you have turned my mourning into dancing. Lament doesn't last. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and you have clothed me with gladness. Listen to his heart. Listen to what his heart is calling to you. Mourn what you have to let go of. But let's give thanks for everything that He's given us and for those that He's placed in our care around us. His grace is what continues to draw us to Him. We're going to sing a wonderful song of His grace here in just a moment. As wonderful as grace is, it doesn't take away the need for us to mourn what we've lost, to mourn what we've given up, to mourn what has captured our heart instead of Him. And so today is as we remind ourselves that He gave us everything, let's in turn give ourselves to Him again. I'm going to pray. We'll sing together. And then we'll take. Let's pray. Father, we, we mourn. We mourn everything that we aren't. We mourn all that we have, all that has led us astray, all that we have given up because we did not give your, our attention completely to You. Father, we mourn knowing that Jesus mourned, knowing that, knowing that it is the call again and again in Scripture, and knowing that this sorrow does not last forever as David reminds us it just lasts for the night and joy comes in the morning. I pray, Father, as we prepare our hearts to take, as we prepare our hearts to meet Your Son at this table, Lord, take the broken parts of us, take those parts that are far away, and help us to Cast those away from You and help us to find You and hold ourselves to You and to You only. Bless this bread that represents the body broken for us. Bless the cup that represents His blood. And Father, I I ask that You would remind us again that Jesus gave Himself fully to us. Let us give ourselves fully to You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.